So it is quite obvious that the present system of so-called modern agriculture, of which we are so immensely proud, has no long-term future. How long it will take to develop on a big scale alternative systems is hard to say, but if the road is long, the only good advice is to get up early and not waste any more We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework. We're trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science and Now we have bigger problems than ever before. But we are conserving literally. It's impossible to care for each other more. What must be done how we care for the overcome? On a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together both scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, E.F. Schumacher, author of Small is Beautiful, suggests how one might begin to transition from violent to nonviolent technology, from chemical to biological agricultural methods, from cleverness to wisdom. Well, I'm extremely happy to be here. How is it in this corner? All right. And I, I thank you for coming. I myself have come a long way from that, uh, what you consider tightly packed little island, the United Kingdom, where I live about uh, 20 miles south of the center of London and can step out of my front door, go for a walk, and never meet a soul. In virgin land. It is uh, reported that a colleague of mine, an economist, uh, did take such a walk there in what they call the North Downs on a Sunday afternoon he could hear the distant roar of traffic down bumper to bumper down to the coast, but uh, there wasn't a soul. I can tell this story in this sacred place. Suddenly, on this Sunday afternoon, he encountered God Almighty. Uh, so he was, uh, of course, taken aback. And he didn't know what to say. But it welled up in him that as a little boy he had been told that 
what is uh, a thousand years to us is but a minute to the Lord. And he said, Lord, is this so? And the Lord said, yes, this is so. By that time, he had recovered his senses and said, perhaps, Lord, it may also be the case that what is a million pounds to us is only a penny to you. And the Lord said, yes. And so he said, well, Lord, give me one of these pennies. <laughs> and the Lord said, certainly, my dear chap, I don't happen to have it on me. Just wait a minute while I fetch it. <laughs> I, I often think, I often think of this incident because... Uh, Really, a lot of our problems have something to do with time spans. Uh, if we extrapolate certain developments, then sooner or later we are bound to get into a situation which is untenable. Uh, we have many humorous statisticians who spend all their time doing this. And uh, it is quite clear if you have the slightest positive uh, surplus of birth rate over death rate, uh, it's just a matter of arithmetic to, to project and predict at which date there will be standing room only. And so um, we have been in this situation my lifetime again and again. In some places, there is a, a decline in the population. If you project it for long enough a period, there won't be anybody, anybody left. So, obviously, in this connection, uh, the time scale is most important. However, now, we are collectively reflecting on certain critical situations that um, may or may not develop. Uh, for instance, uh, this country and other so-called advanced countries were deeply shocked by the oil crisis. And uh, by the sudden change in tone of the oil companies who, until 1973, had uh, been assuring us that there could never be any supply problem. Never. I had freely predicted that there would be such a crisis in the early 70s, but I was denounced because I worked for the coal industry that this was special pleading to keep the pits open. Uh, and uh, now they have suddenly changed their tune. It is a tale of woe. Previously, it was what I called the bland leading the blind. <laughs> but now, it is the despondent giving no leadership at all. It's a very strange situation, I suggest, that these days we have, we are told, more scientists than all previous generations taken together. And it is not illegitimate to ask ourselves, because they're not exactly cheap. Uh, what are they doing all the time? 
And the answer comes back. The answer comes back. They're solving problems. <laughs> well, I would not blame anyone who got uneasy and said, good gracious me, aren't we running out of problems? Oh, no, don't worry. The more they solve them, the more we get. Now we have bigger problems than ever before, even problems of survival. So you must admit this is a very strange situation. A very strange one. And a very serious one. Somehow, it seems that we have fallen upon methods, or let's say a technology, which creates problems faster than even this enormous increase in scientific work can, can solve. From this arises perhaps a different attitude to these methods. And I will sum it up in the little way we talk about these things. We say to solve a problem is the job of a second-class mind. The first-class mind doesn't have the problem in the first place. Arranges his affairs in such a manner that these problems don't arise. I know this can't be done in a perfect way. You might put it in a different way. Some clever person said, if an ancestor of long ago came to visit us today, what would he be more astonished at? The skill of our dentist or the rottenness of our teeth. <laughs> you see this escalation. Of course, we are all extremely grateful for the skill of our dentist, but from this point of view, it's nothing to be proud of. It would be more a subject of pride if we could live without dentists, but not with these rotten teeth. So we are in a phase where we have indulged and accepted arguments where people said, well, this is a wonderful thing. And some of us have said, but look, this is very dangerous. Don't worry. We can solve these problems. It doesn't matter how violent the technology is or how much anti-nature. We'll lick it. We'll do it. And we're still in this phase when we get these warning shots of the fuel crisis of real ecological trouble. And on the human side, I don't have to enumerate it, of uh, the greatest growth factor in most of these advanced societies is crime. That has a rate of growth and is sustained even when the Arabs are not very cooperative on oil supply. So we get these warning shots. And it all points, as far as I can see, to uh, the need for, to start with, a theoretical, but then a practical reconsideration of the way we go about things. Perhaps we could develop an attitude of non-violence. Yes, there are very great difficulties to be overcome. Yes, these scientists find a way of growing more food or doing this and that, and when they come with an answer which is violent, where they try to break this problem with a sledgehammer so that the problem explodes in all directions, and we're left with 12 or 120 problems, then we say, now, 
please go back and come with a more intelligent solution. This is not intelligent. This is not a proper answer. Today, I think the consciousness that we are in deep trouble is wide enough that we don't have to worry too much about the people who are still saying, look here, don't, don't worry, who denounce us as doom watchers and all these nice terms that have been current. We don't have to worry about them. The battlefront is between the two different groups. On the one hand, the group whom I call the people of the forward stampede. Uh, they are the people of the violent technology. Uh, they have uh, written on their flag the words, a breakthrough a day keeps the crisis at bay. <laughs> and, and like the devil, and like the devil, they have all the best tunes. And they have uh, allegedly glamorous stories. And on the other side, what I call the homecomers. The people who say, well, maybe, yes, science is wonderful, technology is wonderful, we couldn't exist without it, but maybe we have uh, fallen for a degree of hybrid that uh, we're making too many mistakes all the time. You will recognize that uh, my terminology, the homecomers, has something to do with the biblical story of the prodigal son, who, when he did turn back, didn't get a bad deal. His living standard didn't decline. The homecomers are not saying now, for, uh, now from now on, uh, lower the temperature so that you're uncomfortable. They may say it is much more clever to wear woolen underwear and heat a hundredweight of grandmother than to heat a, 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 a hundred tons of cement. That is merely a sign of intelligence, not a sign of willingness to reduce the standard of living. The homecomers are not people who reject the good life. They are asking for it. They say, what a miserable lot you are. Most of the time you are out of breath and struggling for things and having to cope with more and more problems. Are we not intelligent enough to arrange our life in such a way that we don't have these problems? I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a lot easier than to live with all the problems that we're loading upon ourselves. Just to give a few examples, I think Bill has already, from what I could catch from time to time, alluded to the subject matter. Uh, there is the production of food. I know perhaps most of you, all of you are townspeople, but uh, then it is very necessary for townspeople to become conscious that it's actually not the town that supports them, but the countryside, and that their primary interest is that the countryside should remain sound. They can't grow enough food on their balconies to survive. Let's take the production of food. 
Now, without any pleading for anything, it is quite clear we can see that only in the last 50 years, which is a very short period in the history of mankind, there has been a total and fundamental change in agricultural technology, namely away from solar energy, which is there all the time, towards fossil fuels, which is non-renewable, namely natural gas and oil to make artificial chemical fertilizers and to propel very expensive, very fuel-intensive big machines. I'm not now just talking about the ecological consequences of these violent technologies, but just the fact that until about 50 years ago, we had an agriculture, which after all is a sine qua non-activity of mankind, because we have to feed ourselves, that was virtually totally dependent on and therefore reliant on solar energy, and we've taken it off and made it totally dependent on fossil fuels, where we now realize that the future supplies are very dicey. So it is quite obvious that the present system of so-called modern agriculture, of which we are so immensely proud, has no long-term future. How long it will take to develop on a big scale, alternative systems, it's hard to say, but if the road is long, the only good advice is to get up early and not waste any more time. And not to argue the difficulties because they're always arguing for themselves. It may be difficult to get uh, bacteria on a sufficient scale to fix the nitrogen we require. And bacteria are difficult to control, but not necessarily more difficult than the Arabs. <laughs> <laughs> and even if they are more difficult, this is quite unfair to the Arabs because we depend not on Arab oil, but on OPEC oil. And uh, oh, OPEC, of course, consists of many other people than Arabs. But it's a, it's a short term. So we know, for instance, there is a task, really, in order to survive these supply crises, we'll have to change from a chemistry to biology, from chemical methods to biolo biological methods. Are we not clever enough to do it? Of course we are clever enough to do it. A small minority of people are doing it, and it works. And they are doing it without any public support. This is just one example. Another example, which of course is weighing on our souls, is the whole matter of nuclear energy. Well, nuclear energy is a violent technology par excellence. It is creating, if it's to be developed at any scale whatsoever, so that it becomes relevant, it is creating a substance, plutonium, of such ghastliness that the good Lord has never touched it. He knew where to stop. Uh, plutonium is a man-made material with a half-life 
of not any more human chaos, but geological chaos. I feel very strongly about this. I remember my first visit to Athens, walking up the Acropolis. And I was walking with some nuclear physicists. And uh, I saw some American archaeologists sieving the sand to find little things to throw the folks back home. And I said to these physicists, it's a good job that this Acropolis was not a nuclear installation. Look at what it looks like now. And that's only 2,500 years old. But the half-life of plutonium is 24,000 years, which from a human point of view is forever. And that's only half, and this is not the two halves make a whole. No, you need another 24,000 years to get the radioactivity down to a quarter of what it is now. This is for all time, humanly speaking. I get sometimes people to argue with me about this. It's only about uh, three million years until this stuff is harmless. I was at a, listening to a lecture of a person who indulged in these speculations about the second law of thermodynamics and, the, and uh, that inevitably because of that unfortunate error of the Almighty, uh, in 70 million years there would be no life left on this earth, which upset a little man in the background who was a stammerer. Afterwards he got up and said, do you really suggest that in 7 million years it's all finished? No, not in 70. In 70 million, the fellow sat down and said, thank God. <laughs> now, to put into this world a substance which will be of intense danger for all time, and to say, now, don't worry, we can cope with it, we are so clever. Well, that is certainly, to my mind, a dimension of human misbehavior which surpasses anything that's ever been done. I know we can argue about this till the cows come home. And we can say, oh, well, so far there haven't been any really serious accidents. But already this ghastly material has been produced on quite a scale so that, uh, that the quality of this, of this, this earth, which has quite rightly, by people who've seen it from a considerable distance, been called a jewel of the universe has been grossly diminished by the presence of this plutonium, which so far we have no idea of how ever to get rid of it again. Well, this is just, uh, are just two examples of uh, how we have slid into violent technologies and have totally neglected the non-violent technology. And of course, since human life is really all a unity, if we employ very violent technologies, it's very likely that we also indulge in very violent behavior. And with these technologies, it's unthinkable. I say, therefore, we are now far too clever to be able to survive without wisdom. 
When we were not so clever, we couldn't do so much damage. That was a safer period. When we face this, the question arises, what can I do about it? And because this development of these extraordinary patterns, not only in the technologies, but the extraordinary polarization in the pattern of settlement of the population. I think of a city like this, or a city like Tokyo, or a city like London. Something of the order of 10 million people, all living densely together. Most extraordinary. Nobody wants this, really. Nobody can argue in favor of it. It just happens, but it happens in connection with certain technological development. It's all quite new. I mean, it's not, a, it's not the nature of things. No, all great countries of great cultures, they have had a very decentralized system, and the most famous cities of the world has a population of 50,000 where they could uh, do anything. All the things that we, we can't really do anymore. All this has something to do with the, the violent technology, which also then requires violently big apparatus, a, a, a violently, violently complex science, a violently over-exaggerated degree of specialization so that you don't get real people anymore but specialists who, as you know, have been defined as a specialist, the person who knows more and more about less and less until he knows everything about nothing. In any case, in all the matters of real life, he has no more judgment because he spends all his time solving these esoteric, specialized problems. Now, most of us take this as normal. What I'm trying to say is this is totally abnormal. And a very recent development in the history of mankind. It's hardly 50 years old. It's hardly 50 years old. At the most, 100 years. 100 years ago, there was virtually no oil, virtually no steel, no cement, and no electricity. And all this has only appeared in really the lifetime of my mother, who died nearly 100 years old, uh, the other day. She remembers it all. I was in this great city in the early 30s. Actually, life was very much the same as now, except not so much traffic noise. Uh, and we could go reveling at night along Riverside Drive, virtually without any danger. Or play hide-and-seek in Central Park. Uh, at that time, the United States, per person, used one-eighth of the electricity that is required now. One-eighth. Oh, I can think back 50 years. And taking the world scale of this essential commodity about which now all the advanced nations have sleepless nights, the oil consumption of the world in the middle 20s was 5% of what it is now. And of that oil, 
70% was produced in the United States. That was enough to make Mr. Rockefeller rich. And two-thirds of all the world's oil was consumed in the United States. We in Europe got on virtually without oil. Thank you very much, very nicely. Even with enough surpluses to, to carry on ghastly worldwide wars. The total ocean-going transport of oil 50 years ago was about as much as the spillage of oil into the oceans now. Now, the ocean-going transport of oil measured in ton miles is twice as much as all other ocean-going transport put together. And what do we do? What do we think? We think in 1985, since Project Independence obviously seems to only lead to increased dependence, in 1985 we shall probably need 50% more than now. Or if it's not 1985, then 1995, what does it matter? What I'm saying is we should, first of all, when we are asking ourselves what can we do about it, just understand the situation and understand the abnormality of most of the things that we take for being completely normal. So the beginning of it is let us understand and no longer be bamboozled by all this empty talk. I'm not standing here to throw stones at, at government, but it's very hard to avoid it. A few years ago, I had, was, uh, happened to be here, I testified to a commission that was traveling around on Project Independence that by 1985, the United States would be independent of oil imports. I said, come on, wake up. It won't happen. Well, three years later, the dependence has increased by 50%. These things are perfectly understandable. But one, must, well, one, one has to sort out one's own mind on this. This is number one. The first question, the first answer to the question, what can I do? This is not easy work. It is, worth, it, it is not a stage that can be jumped. Well, then we think, well, now we understand now enough. Uh, and also have sorted it out a little bit action is required, and have some idea of what action is required. And then people come and say, but what can I do? I'm nobody. So small. Perhaps I can speak to my member of parliament or something like this. But, uh, yes, speak to him all, by all means, but don't think that this is much of an action. The second thing we can all do is join the people who are already at work. Find them and join them. It is quite amazing how many disturbed people I meet who are tearing their hair out and say, I don't know what to do, and I say, are you a member of, uh, Thompson mentioned it, that I run a, the Soil Association which works for the development of the alternative agricultural system. Are you a member of the Soil Association? Oh no, I'm not. Well, why do you ask me what can I do? <laughs> Join the soil association. Only costs you a few dollars a year. 
And without support, how can the pioneers who are really working on the future, how can they get anywhere? So that is a very easy answer. We are social beings. We don't sit in isolation, tearing out our heads, saying, I am too small to do anything. Our task as social beings is to, to search the people who are already at work and support them. They need support. In case you can't find anyone who does the right thing or have an idea, then you have to initiate. But once you have joined, have found the right people, you may go further and then do, and this is number three, uh, do real work. So first understand, secondly join, and then do real work. And if you find nothing to, to join, then you initiate. Well, I'll now tell you a few minutes, uh, and I hope you will not take this as... You Americans always develop these nice terms. I will use it. You won't take it simply as an ego trip on my part if I tell you uh, how we set up, without waiting for anyone, an organization which set itself a task to bring a new spirit and direction into technology. Now, uh, something more presumptuous you couldn't possibly imagine. Some, you can't do these things uh, by calculation. You can only do them in the spirit of happy abandon. <laughs> and when people say, but now please, I mean really, what are you trying to do? I am going to change world technology. What, any tech? Yes, any technology. But for goodness sakes, where? Oh, in the world, for the whole of mankind. But really, I mean, uh, you're not uh, Archimedes and uh, Galileo and uh, all rolled into one. How, well, I don't know how to do it, but it needs to be done, doesn't it? Start. Start. Starting actually is not all that difficult once you have an idea. It is then necessary to give the matter some legal form. Well, that is, in our societies, that is quite easy. You register a company, uh, maybe with charity status, as we call it, so that you can receive donations from all the people who want to join that kind of thing, uh, tax-free. Uh, I joined... Um, I, I started uh, an organization which we called the Intermediate Technology Development Group Limited. Still very limited. <laughs> but now, after 12 years, we have people working in the entire British society on this. About a thousand people. The Intermediate Technology Development Group. What, 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 what does that mean? Because we analyzed and came to this conclusion that with this great and breathtaking technological progress, there is not offered to mankind a wide range of technologies. No, the lowest type of technology, that always remains. And the latest and the best, that is there, 
but the needle disappears. You may notice it in the bookshop. If you don't believe it, go into a great bookshop in the city and you ask for the latest publications, you can get them. You ask for the classics, you can get them. But anything published in 1965, unobtainable. This is only, I, I give these examples so that uh, we begin not just to listen to words, but to see these things. I was a farm laborer 40 years ago. We farmed very efficiently, a 300-acre farm, which is a big farm by British standards. And uh, all this with animal-drawn equipment, sheep equipment. With a couple of thousand pounds, you can equip this farm. Not a single piece of this equipment is obtainable anywhere now. It has disappeared. It has re been replaced by a much higher, but also much more expensive technology, so that in order to get the equipment for these 300 acres, you now, and I'm not I'm allowing for inflation, you now don't need 2,000 pounds, but 50,000 pounds. If you don't have it, you can't farm. So the middle has disappeared, and that's why we called this organization, which wasn't even at the middle, it was at the bottom end, in financial terms, the Intermediate Technology Development Group. Well, then you have to do a lot of talking, but once you have an address, at least people can find you, and then you make little arrangements that they can join you, and you just, then you start work. No use waiting for anyone to do it. You've got to do it. So we started work. There were two of us. Well, two can't do very much. But uh, if they're family people, there's always the possibility of getting slave labor. <laughs> we were sitting there asking, how can we possibly do anything? What is, what is it what we ought to be doing? We heard that British government was sending an aid mission out to Nigeria. So we said, these people, this aid mission, will only know about tractors and combine harvesters and the most expensive equipment. Let us very quickly find out what really intermediate technology equipment is still anywhere obtainable and make a catalog. Well, we had to scurry around to do it, we couldn't get the catalog printed. We, we didn't have uh, the money anyhow. Uh, so we got it roneoed and rolled it off by hand. And uh, I press ganged my, my children to put the things together and into envelopes. And we just caught that mission at Heathrow Airport in London with a parcel. Take this along. They came back and said it was most extraordinary. People weren't frightfully interested in us as, as a mission, but your Roneoed catalogue was torn out of our hands. And they all said, for the first time, the rich have understood something about the problem of poverty. Well, from there, one went into the dark, 
always beating off the people who said you can't do anything because of the big vested interests and the corporations. Because the first argument against these pessimists is we are so small they don't even notice us. And they're busy making money. Uh, and uh, so then more and more people heard about it and they came, you were doing something interesting. I'm not interested in it. You know, I've got a perfectly good job. I don't want to make extra money, but I would like to enjoy myself, and you're enjoying yourself. And so the thing grew. At the moment, we have an organization that, uh, that uh, extends into 26 special fields, uh, subject by subject, the appropriate technology for conditions in rural areas, whether in poor countries or rich countries, makes very little difference uh, in terms of water, in terms of power, in terms of agricultural equipment, rural health, uh, textiles, building materials, chemicals, cooperatives, hardware subjects, software subjects, 26 specialized uh, and we have a number of uh, subsidiary companies, namely our publishing company, our main aim being to put out new technological knowledge, so you have to print and push it out. Our development, research and development and trading company, and, uh, and our advisory services company. On the whole, the main organization is, has charitable status. It is not for making money. It is a non-profit organization. But while I was going around on invitation only and doing it for free when President Nyerere of Tanzania asked for advice, when, let's say, the Saudi Arabians came, and asked for advice, I thought it might uh, be my duty to recycle some petrodollar. <laughs> and, uh, and so we gave ourselves the choice and set up a, a purely commercial subsidiary company who would give advice as ordinary consultants do, but of course in the line with our basic convictions and ideology. So whenever anybody asks, there is a decision to be taken whether I wear or my colleagues wear the charitable hat or the commercial hat. And the petrodollars can then help us to finance our charitable activities. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you don't think that this was simply an ego trip. I wanted to make it quite clear. In my opinion, the time where one can sit back and say government ought to do, or somebody else to, ought to do, or I can't do anything, we can't afford that anymore. We have to, ourselves, either join, that is the minimum, or start. And that starting is not all that difficult, and it is much better to start with the positive ideas and then the money and the premises will, will come. Rather than to start with the money and the premises, 
and then say, now what are we going to do? Which is how most of the big organizations have been started. Well, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org slash donate.